Hello, welcome to Agbus Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the idea of a hidden caliphate, of the role of Muslim scholar saints in maintaining social stability across the region between what's now the Oxus and the Indus of Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Central Asia, across a period in the 18th, 19th to early 20th century that was characterized by political fragmentation and often the breakdown of many states and empires. Joining me in this conversation is Professor Walid Ziad. He'll be telling us about the heirs of a very major Sufi figure of the 17th century by the name of Ahmad Sirhindi. In the decades before Sirhindi died in 1624 in the Western calendar, a very significant moment took place in the Islamic calendar, the year 1000, the Islamic millennium. Such was the scale and importance, the originality and the insights of Sir Hindi's teachings that many of his followers called him the Mujadidi al-Fisani, the renewer of the second millennium. That's to say, in the years after the turning of the millennium, the year 1000 in the Islamic calendar, Sir Hindi was seen as the renewer, the reviver of the Muslim faith for the next thousand years. While over the following centuries, certainly, and in many ways still today, Sir Hindi's followers in the Naqshbandi Mujadidi order that he established would fan out across India, what's now Pakistan, Afghanistan, through Central Asia as far as China, and across imperial Russia to establish Hanukkahs, teaching institutions that combined their moral, practical, as well as their intellectual and mystical teachings of the lineage and heirs of Sir Hindi and his scholar, saint, descendants and followers. We'll begin by starting out in this region between the Oxus and the Indus and getting a sense of the lie of the land before we start to hear more about the extraordinary teachings of Sir Hindi and his followers right down to the present day. Hello, Walid. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you so much for having me here. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, today we're going to be talking about the long-lasting but little recognized role of Muslim scholar saints in providing their followers with not only spiritual, but also social and political leadership in what's today Pakistan, Afghanistan and Central Asia at large over the 18th, 19th and early 20th century and still with a an important legacy today that we'll explore as we go on. So can you start us off by introducing the religious landscape and the history of this region that lies 
beyond the Oxus and the Indus rivers. So the stories I tell in this book center on what is today Afghanistan and broader Central and South Asia from the 18th to the 20th centuries, though it spills well over into Siberia and the Volga region in Russia and then a little bit into Western China. Prior to where my story begins in the 1500s and 1600s, this zone that is again Afghanistan and its neighbors, how several great empires, among them the Uzbeks across today's Central Asia, the Mughals from Kabul to Bengal, the Safavids in Iran, and despite the multiple ethnicities and languages uh, in these places, Persian was lingua franca that tied them together. Not just the language, but of course the, the culture, notions of kingship and of spirituality that came with it. So over the centuries, this region had given rise to a host of defining mystical traditions, ranging from four great Sufi orders, highly institutionalized with incredible literary output and spiritual pedagogies, all the way to the pierced, wild, wandering ascetics. Among the major Sufi traditions were the more sober Naqshbandis, known for their highly sophisticated systems of meditation, of spiritual praxis, and they had one dominating sub-branch who were called the Mujaddidis, and they are the main subject of this book. And all these traditions blended together with shared teachers and disciples and pedagogies. What's important to note is that these traditions were not marginalized heterodoxies in this region. They were a core part of communal life from the streets all the way to the palaces. The Sufi centers, the shrines, um, they were places where princes and nobles rubbed shoulders with beggars and tradesmen. But my story, opens at a time when these great empires are collapsing. And then out of the blue in the 1730s appears this Persian conqueror, Nader Shah, who occupies and ravages Iran, Central Asia, and the Mughal Empire. Then in 1747, he abruptly dies, leaving a legacy of rupture, a vacuum, which is really the pivotal moment in my story. So. Niall, I'll walk you through the periodization in my book. In chapter one, I lay out the history of this whole Eastern Muslim zone in the 18th and 19th century. And I do this in these 50-year chunks. So after Nader Shah's death uh, from about 1750 to 1800, decentralized states gradually emerge out of the chaos in various places like Shiraz in Iran, several cities in modern-day Uzbekistan like Bukhara and Khiva, in Sindh and Balochistan, in modern-day Pakistan, and so on and so forth. All sorts of little states pop up. Shrine states, states led by religious figures, by brigands, you name it. But chief among these new states was the Avran Durrani Empire, which in its height stretched from Iran all the way to North India, from the Oxus to the Indus. Now then, um, the next chunk is from 1800 to 1850, where some of these new states consolidated while the Avran Empire broke up into several smaller states. But all of them began facing pressure from some new arrivals, and that is Russia and Britain. Together, the great game rivalry squeezed out this region, making it a buffer zone in the control for over Asia. Finally, uh, from about 1850 to 1900, the two empires took over the whole zone. Uh, the states between gradually fell one by one. Now, the conventional understanding says that from the 18th century onwards, 
Afghanistan and this vast region on both sides of the Oxus and Indus were backwards, isolated, underdeveloped, dangerous peripheries. Notions brought to us by the likes of such colonial travelers as Richard Burton, Alexander Burns, and other favorites. And certainly, if you look at it from the vantage point of the petty bickering states, it does seem incredibly chaotic. But my book tells a very different and unexpected story, that the moment one looks beyond the court chronicles and the colonial travel accounts to the literature that's coming out of the madrasas, out of the Sufi centers, and the built environment, a very different picture emerges of a cosmopolitan, interconnected, and rich world tied together by Sufi networks. The story that I tell in this book was actually very surprising to me, and it keeps surprising me in the way that it unfolds. In fact, I wish it could just go on and on. It started with this unknown biography of a mostly forgotten Sufi based in Peshawar and Bukhara, named Fazal Ahmad, who died in 1816. Keep in mind, Peshawar is now considered this wild frontier city in northwestern Pakistan, hugging the Afghan border. Bukhara is now a very pretty tourist town in Uzbekistan with no real commercial importance. So this Sufi, Fazal Ahmad, is the fulcrum of my book, and he belonged to the Mujaddidi order, which was the most widespread of the Sufi networks at this time. As I immersed myself in his story, and literally and physically followed his footsteps across the Indus and Oxus rivers, it became clear that he was connected to almost every major mystic, intellectual, and political figure and social movement in the Afghan Empire and Central Asia, and Russia and India of the 18th and 19th centuries. The famed Uzbek state builders of Bukhara, the kings Shamurad and Amir Haider, were not just his disciples, but his licensed Sufi representatives, who were assigned by him to teach meditative practices to their own students. Several Afghan kings were his disciples and relied on him for trans-regional diplomacy. The notorious English agents and great gamers, William Moorcroft and Alexander Burns, relied on his son to get them into Central Asia for the first time. And these are really the first English forays into Central Asia. Fazal Ahmad's deputies in Peshawar led the charge against the famous Mujahideen movement in the 1820s. And this is an absolutely fascinating moment, loosely the first attempt to set up what we can really call a Wahhabi-esque puritanical state in the Eastern Muslim world. And Fazal Ahmad's deputies were successful in driving these ideologues out of the region. Fazal Ahmad's son in Qoqand towards China was like a patron saint of the kingdom. And his disciple was none other than Mukini, one of the pillars of Uzbek poetry. Yet another family member was a famous ambassador to St. Petersburg, who met and conducted a very important negotiation with Tsar Nicholas. Shahabuddin Marjani, regarded as the fountainhead of the Russian Tatar intellectual awakening, was a deputy of Fazal Ahmad's other son. And another son, meanwhile, was mobilizing thousands of tribal auxiliaries in a decisive battle against the Sikhs when they were poised to occupy Afghanistan in the early 1800s. Yet another disciple was the Ahund of Swat. Uh, Niall, I know that you're more than familiar with Edward Lear's famous limericks, 
who or why or which or what is the Achand of Swat? Is he tall or short or dark or fair? Does he sit on a stool or a sofa or chair or squat? The Achand of Swat. And of course, it goes on and on. Anyway, he was this incredible ascetic of the Abran Highlands who set up a famous Sufi state in the mountains, now in the Swat Valley in North Pakistan, who both Edward Lear and British administrators evidently had a hard time making sense of. The custodians of Mazar-e-Sharif, which is the sacred epicenter of Central Asia, where Imam Ali is believed to have been buried, were also Fazal Ahmad's disciples, and one of them penned his biography. Several of the great Sufi scholars of Siberia were from his lineage, who pondered over such questions as to whether the evening prayers could be skipped in the event of three hours of daylight, clearly in the winter times. One of the largest madrasas in Xinjiang until the 20th century, the Chang Madrasa was part of his lineage via Kyrgyzstan. And yet, Fazal Ahmed's name is all but forgotten. Through his story, and he is one of thousands of these transnational Sufis, it becomes clear that this vast inner Asian world was entirely interconnected. The pastoral nomads of Central Asia, the urban centers, the ungovernable highlands, and the rural breadbaskets. So at this time of fracturing of the great empires in the 18th century, and the rise of these petty states, these khanates, and of course the Afghan empire in between, Fazal Ahmad and his contemporary Sufis were a glue that kept this world together. So in my story, it's the political decentralization of the 18th and 19th centuries that actually gives rise to these non-state sacred networks that spur intellectual productivity, connectivity, and even unprecedented commercial growth. Through all of this, I also demonstrate that the Persianate cosmopolis lasts certainly until the late 19th century. This means that there is a shared and potent Islamo-Persianate culture, which is mediated by these Sufis, among others. And of course, this book is very much an Avran story about recentering the lost Avran imperial moment which lasts from about 1750 to 1800. It's a new narrative of Afghanistan as this cosmopolitan hinge of Asia, not just some dusty breeding ground of fanatics and bloodthirsty warriors. It's this vast Afghan empire, which sits at the crossroads of Iran, South and Central Asia, between the maritime trade and overland horse trade routes, between the great cities and the pastoral nomadic confederacies, with a very unique decentralized and flexible imperial structure that ends up creating a space that spurred an academic and spiritual revival from Western China to the Volga in Russia. Well, thank you for introducing all of that so, so effectively, Walid. And if I can, in, in some ways, kind of extrapolate and the, some of the major themes we've been talking about, it's this 18th century breakdown of these major imperial states, the the Safavid Empire based in Iran, but ruling much of what's today Afghanistan and, and parts of what's, what's Pakistan. This is breaking down in the 1720s onwards. And in India, the Mughal Empire after the death of Aurangzeb in 1707, this is rapid turnover of, 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 of Mughal emperors very quickly. And, and, and indeed, there are all of these other new powers rising up in South Asia, whether the Marathas or the, the British East India Company. And, and, and as you said, the, 
if we look at history through the prism of, of statehood, it's, it's a period of 18th century and 19th century, and early 19th century of, 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 of breakdown, of, of state breakdown. And yet you said at the same time, the, the emergence, the consolidation of these Sufi orders that have developed in previous centuries, the Naqshbandi order that you're focusing on, the Naqshbandi Mujahideen, the Naqshbandis go back to the name of their founder, Bahadur Naqshband of Bukhara in Central Asia, dies in 1389. And, and it's these orders, these networks, which as you pointed out, are not heterodox, they're not unorthodox, they are Islam. They are the respectable leaders of Islam. And it's these Sufis then that are providing social stability amid this period of, let's say, political instability. And I think that's tremendously important, and not least the large kind of space that you're showing us this is, this is happening, these, these rivers, the Oxus, the border between what's now Afghanistan and the other stands of Central Asia and, and the Indus, in some ways, historically, the border between Central Asia and India, the, the lowlands. But, but as you pointed out, the, the, the figures you're dealing with, these Sufi leaders and their activities are stretching much wider into China, indeed, into into Russia and indeed the imperial capital at St. Petersburg. So in your book, you described how generations then of these scholar saints, these Sufi learned Sufi writers using Persian, this lingua franca continued across this region of so many different spoken languages and Persian still remains this lingua franca. You've described how generations of these Naqshbandis, Mujahidi scholar saints, constructed a, a hidden caliphate that provided then ordinary Muslims then with what I've summed up as social stability, both practical and pious leadership in their daily lives on the ground, in villages, towns, among tribespeople, merchants, uh, cities and mountainside. So in order for us to, to get a better sense of who exactly we're dealing with here with these scholar saints, can you introduce the, this Naqshbandi order uh, perhaps its founder, Bahauddin Naqshband, certainly Ahmed Sid Hindi, who, who creates this Mujadidi branch of the Naqshbandis. And tell us about the different aspects of their teachings and how their network then expands across this, this larger region. Absolutely, uh, Niall. So um, to, be, to begin with, this, uh, this idea of these Sufi networks as a hidden caliphate. Uh, in fact, the very idea of a hidden caliphate is not um, it's not a new concept. It's a very, very old concept. From the early years of Islam, Sufis and scholars like the Naqshbandis, like the Mujaddidis, were providing leadership to the Muslim world and really beyond. So whether you were Sunni or Shia, you'd believe that after the tragedy of Karbala, which marks the martyrdom of the last true caliph, the last true representative of the prophet, political and spiritual authority are no longer fused. The rulers are not spiritual guides. Among most Muslims, there's an understanding that the true authority lies with the ones of Gnosis, whether the Imams, the jurists, the academics, and especially the Sufis. These people of Gnosis are the hidden caliphs, the true inheritors of the prophet. The kings and the khans are the manifest caliphate. They provide day-to-day -day governance, they keep order, but purely in the temporal realm, the hidden caliphs are supposed to guide the hearts. So who are the Mujaddidi Sufis who my work centers on? Something very particular happens at around 1600. That's critical to the story that I tell. 
with the emergence of a widely misunderstood mystic of the Naqshbandi order, Sheikh Ahmad Sirhindi from the North Indian town of Sirhind between Lahore and Delhi, who I argue truly transforms Islam from Indonesia all the way to Istanbul. Sirhindi is known as the Mujaddid, meaning the renewer or the reviver of the second millennium of Islam. His followers, the Mujaddidis, literally renewers, were the most widespread Muslim network prior to the 20th century. Sirhindi is an absolutely fascinating figure, and he's been very poorly uh, represented, very misrepresented actually in recent works. He, in his early years, worked with the Mughal administration at the time of the great emperor Akbar, and he became perturbed by the politicization of Sufism, the careless cultic use of Sufi practices, all sorts of half-wits claiming spiritual authority, and then on the other hand, corrupt scholarly classes with no spiritual compass. So in response to this, through his lifetime, Sirhindi came up with a philosophical practical system. There are three of his many contributions that define the Mujaddidi order and actually ended up spurring the rapid expansion of their networks in the centuries to come. These were the key ingredients of the great revival, the building blocks of the Mujaddidi hidden caliphate. So what were they? First, uh, Sirhindi was a grand synthesizer. He effectively bridged the gap between Sufism and Sharia, the world of the jurists and the world of the mystics. I'm not going to do justice to his highly complex philosophical works, but let's say uh, that he proved that Sufism had to be circumscribed within Sharia and vice versa, Sharia had to be understood through Sufism. They were two wings. And by the way, I should mention that here we're not talking about modern understandings of Sharia as some state-enforced code, uh, we're talking about the divine law in a much broader sense, which encompasses the prophetic example, faith, good behavior, adab, uh, ritual, inner purity, and so on and so forth. Now, second, Sirhindi systematically laid out the path of Sufi spiritual growth. This inspired a streamlined curriculum combining sciences from Hadith studies and law to logic to breath control and meditation, bringing together the insights of multiple Sufi orders. So he actually translated and aligned Sufi practices across a mass of traditions that were circulating at the time. His teachings then were disseminated through integrated educational institutions that served as both madrasas or colleges and centers for Sufi practice. In other words, the worlds of the scholars and the Sufis were reunited as integral parts of one system. Third, Sirhindi had some really fascinating ideas on millennial revival and his own role in these cosmic millennial transformations. That after the a thousand years um, following the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 1602, the spirit of Islam required renewal and Sirhindi and his students, the Mujaddidis, were its agents. So Sirhindi and his successors built a paradigmatic Sufi center in the city of Sirhind, so famous that the city itself became known as the abode of guidance. This was all gestating in the 17th century. But then amid the political crises of the mid 18th century that we just talked about, 
Sir Hind was repeatedly plundered. The Mujaddidi Sufis residing there ended up emigrating in waves, often resettling in faraway places. Many of them ended up in the Afghan Empire. Some of them went from there beyond. And in all these places, they were seen as the revivers of the true spirit of Sufism. And among them was Fazal Ahmad, the protagonist of this book. And, and this Afghan empire you, you just mentioned, this, this is founded by Ahmad Shah Durrani, isn't it, in 1747, and survives to the, what, 1823, 1840. This is this sort of interstitial moment in the story of telling, isn't it? Absolutely. And in this period then, and again, it's this period of, in the Afghan empire itself emerged, 1747, but after the death of its founder, 25 years later, Ahmad Shah Durrani, it's already starting to, to crumble. So again, this period of, of social instability, political instability, and it's these Naqshbandiri Mujadidis that are providing this social stability there. And I think what, what you've described for us then is, is rooted in, in the founder then, um, Ahmad Sirahindi's teachings, which is this emphasis on saying, okay, what you've called there, well, gnosis, using the Greek word then, but, but mystical knowledge, isn't it? Uh, knowledge directly from God, irfan or marifat, as it would be called in the Arabic or the Persian then, that this is, of course, extremely important. This is the defining knowledge of the Sufi sect. And yet, Sir Hindi is arguing, as you, as you pointed out so, so clearly, that the, the, the Sharia, the rules of ordinary life, the ways of behaving in the world, morally, fairly, justly, they're crucially important as well. And I think that helps us then, doesn't it, sort of understand that, that how the, these Sufi saints then can provide this social stability, because they're not only, as it were, involved in, let's say, mystical teaching, they're providing moral codes of, of behavior, and indeed much more. So how then, in more detail, can you tell us how these Sufi saints, the followers of Ahmad Sir Hindi, were able to create such popular and enduring forms of leadership? Because after all, we might usually think of Sufis as being mystics with little concern for worldly affairs, let alone being involved with caravans, trade, diplomacy, and all these other things that, uh, that you've, you've alluded to. So first, of course, Niall, as you mentioned, we have to rid ourselves of the notion of Sufis being recluses. Undoubtedly, all of my protagonists uh, end up spending a significant amount of time in meditation, in traveling, most of them also go through what we'd call spiritually intoxicated states where you know, they're totally lost in the divine. But the Mujaddidi Sufis, and frankly, most of the Sufi systems at this time, did not value God intoxication and being a recluse as a sustainable state. The true guides were actually sober. They were connected to the world. They were those who could practically help others in their spiritual journey and in their worldly affairs. So how do all of this translate into the political social sphere? And then how do the Mujaddidis end up creating this really fascinating form of leadership? And this, of course, has a lot to do with the politics of the 18th century. As the older imperial structures were breaking down, local ruling elites on both sides of the Oxus and Indus, and of course the Afghan empire is key among them, 
effectively entrusted their scholastic and social services to the Sufi orders, whose popular authority appealed to both the urban intelligentsia as well as to tribal and rural populations. They could reach across these various domains. These Sufis then formed institutional networks which were quite separate from the fiscal military institutions of the state with a lot more resilience and flexibility and longevity. Their Sufi centers, their madrasas, their shrines formed a superstructure that could enable this trans-regional knowledge economy and actually provide some form of coherence to this politically fragmented region. And this coherence was made possible through a constant flow of texts, of practices, and of course, human capital. In tandem, their rural institutions and the land endowments that these Sufis were given spurred agricultural production. And the Sufi centers were places where multiple ethnicities and classes often came together, bottom to top. Ruling elites did not confine themselves to some sort of parallel, quote unquote, secular space. Rather, they too spent time in the Sufi centers. Their participation as patrons and disciples was actually tied to the practices and, of course, the performance of power and statecraft. A good king was a good Sufi, was a good disciple. As such, um, my work is an inquiry into the nature of a fiber, to use Joseph Fletcher's term, which held together parts of Eurasia before the 20th century. And how was this fiber fashioned? Relying on Sirhindi's pioneering theological interventions, um, specifically on reconciling or integrating different Sufi pedagogies and the Sharia, the Mujaddidis became a synthetic tradition, at once transregional and comfortably local wherever they went. So they were quite easily able to adapt to faraway places and then absorb older communities and spaces and practices. A diversified support and capital base meant that they were not restricted to any one region or dependent on any localized sources of income. And they became the arch intermediaries, the honest brokers. As Sufi saints, as scholars, popular poets, and jurists, they were called upon to mediate between the urban and tribal elites and subjects, between often antagonistic polities, colonial and local authorities. In fact, they worked both with colonial and local authorities and agrarian highland communities. They led trade caravans across the Khyber Pass and the Oxus River and where required even raised armies. Their institutions became public spaces, which actually furnished a whole array of services that went beyond simply education or meditation or popular ritual. They were soup kitchens, they were caravanserais, they were safe houses, as well as places where trade negotiation and diplomacy took place. They were also sites, of course, for the propagation of poetry and texts, didactic, polemical, and historical that really helped define the contours of Persianate Islam in this period. And these are the type of stories that I'm bringing across in each chapter of my book. The book is actually structured like a transregional or transgenerational travelogue of this great 18th century Sufi Fazal Ahmad and his descendants well into the 21st century, which somewhat mirrors my own voyage, starting from Sirhind uh, in the Mughal Highlands, to Peshawar, now in northwestern Pakistan, near the Afghan border, to Kabul, Afghanistan's capital, 
moving northwards to Mazar-e-Sharif, which is in North Afghanistan towards the Uzbek border, Bukhara in Uzbekistan into the Volga and the steppes, to eastward into Fargana and Xinjiang in China, and then to nomadic grazing grounds on both sides of the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, where the great nomadic migrations met the trans-regional trade routes. Surprisingly, the last of the great descendants of my protagonist, Fazal Ahmad, was the arch-saint of North Waziristan, which was dubbed by Obama as the most dangerous place in the world, and he was a spiritual guide of the Afghan tribal belt through all the brutal wars of the late 20th century. We've just recently found his collected letters and poetry in Persian, in Pashto, in Urdu, and in Arabic, which I'll be digitizing and publishing soon, which attest to the fact that this cosmopolitan Persianate world was still very much alive, or I should say is still very much alive in the Afghan tribal belt in the 21st century. Half the fun has really been the journey itself encountering an array of sources from the built environment, uh, oral histories, biographies, uh, cosmological texts, magical texts, polemics, and determining how to approach each of these as valid historical sources. And because of the varied sources that we find in each region, each node ends up telling a very different story. In each chapter, in each region, I attempt to provide intimate practical insights into the mechanics of the Sufi networks, how the orders were able to actually penetrate into such varied sacred landscapes, and the multifaceted role that these mujaddidis played as academics or therapists or diplomats, as intermediaries or as traders. And each node, each chapter, therefore provides unique insights into a whole set of debates that I try to address. So for example, problematizing the boundaries of pre-modern orthodoxy and heterodoxy. What did it look like prior to the 20th century? The origins of the quote-unquote Wahhabi traditionalist clash, which is ostensibly going on today. The interconnection of jurists, Sufis, intellectuals, and poets. Where did all of these worlds meet? Breaking down distinctions between folk shrine Islam and urban high Islam, which seem to really form part of one integrated domain in my story. The relationship between commercial and nomadic and religious networks. Uh, even the mechanics of war mobilization through sacred networks, which is an absolutely fascinating topic. But the key theoretical intervention in this book is positing the hidden and manifest caliphate model as a way to understand sovereignty in the Muslim world before the 20th century. I argue that people across Central and Southern Asia and Inner Asia understood authority structures to inhere in a two-tiered paradigm, the Zahiri or manifest and above it the Batini or hidden caliphate. In this two-tiered hierarchical model, which actually draws from terms that the Sufis use themselves. There's a very famous 18th century Sufi Shah Waliullah of Delhi who talks about this very explicitly. The hidden caliphate of Sufi scholastic networks maintained a trans-regional balance positioned above a manifest caliphate, the political authority made up of small and fractured states. Uh, this model is markedly different 
from prevailing visions of Islamic sovereignty that we often see in the textbooks, like the early caliphate versus the sultanate model, or the model of a king with a subservient religious sphere that upholds kingly authority. And it's certainly far away from the more modern conceptions of a top-down Islamic nation state. So you've given us this sense then that practically, concretely, one might say, how these Sufi, Sufis who are mystics on the one hand, through their, their Bartini, their mystical, their inner states and experiences, how they engage with the wider world, their communities, the different followers, is through these built institutions, the Hanukkahs, as they're usually called, the Sufi monasteries, so to speak. Not quite the same, because Sufis famously marry and they have children after the model of the Prophet Muhammad. But, you know, monasteries in the sense of these bigger institutions. And one of the extraordinary things about your own research is the fact that you've been to so many of these, these institutions, these Hanukkahs, these shrines or monasteries, as we might gloss that term, Hanukkah. So perhaps could you give us an example of one of these places by describing one of these Hanukkahs, whether in what's now Pakistan or Afghanistan that you visited in the course of your research? Absolutely. Well, I can discuss several of them because they take really fascinating forms depending on where they are. And this is actually, um, this is uh, one of the unexpected parts of the research. The, um, the central Hanukkah uh, is in the city of Peshawar itself. And in fact, the, unfortunately, the Hanukkah in Bukhara was demolished sometime earlier on this century. But the, so it, it exists within a, a fairly um, important central part of the city. And in the center is a shrine garden. And this would be with his shrine and the shrine of Fazal Ahmad and the shrine of several of his family members, as well as several close disciples, some of whom came from Central Asia. Uh, the whole shrine complex is actually, uh, it radiates outwards. So the central space where, the, where this garden, this courtyard did, is where some of the spiritual practices would take place. Beyond that, on one side, you find the homes of, in fact, families from Bukhara who had come to settle in Peshawar. On the other side, you find his mosque, where his very modest house was located. And adjacent to this is also a space where some of the more advanced meditative practices actually took place as a sequence of meditative cells. And then with, the, with this particular Hanukkah, it had no madrasa attached to it, but was connected to two of the most important madrasas in Peshawar, which were actually drawing students from all across Central Asia and, and all across India. Um, another Hanukkah, which is probably the most, I would say, intact Hanukkah, is located in the city of Khokhand, now in eastern Uzbekistan, which has four quadrangles. And one of the quadrangles is the dedicated madrasa, again, with cells for the students and classrooms. The second is actually the Hanukkah, where several of the meditative practices would take place, where the inner sciences would take place. And then yet another quadrangle is uh, dedicated to the shrine, which then becomes a space for visitation. Uh, and this, is, this becomes actually a very public space. This is presumably where the, uh, again, everyone from the, the king down to the, the population of the city would come to, to pay respects to the, uh, to the shrine. Um, but this is, not every, not every space looked like this. Um, there were, um, in Dera Ismail Khan, which is really 
where these nomadic uh, groups from across Central Asia would gather twice a year in these in this grand migration that really went from Uzbekistan all the way to the to the Indus. Um, their world was very different. And uh, it's fascinating to see the way that these worlds actually coincided. The initial Hanukkah was probably very, very informal. The first sheikh who was appointed by Fazal Ahmad to lead this was himself illiterate. So their world looks very, very different. In fact, the stories tell of um, wild animals attending the, the gatherings, and there are all sorts of fantastical miracles which happen around this space. And even today, you see reflections of that. Uh, perhaps the last point I'd make here is that uh, a lot of the Hanukkahs, and this is in um, Peshawar and Kabul especially, have a parallel space, which I write about in my upcoming book. And this space is called the Haram Sarai. Uh, the Haram Sarai is a parallel female space. Um, it's a space with its own uh, charitable endowments. In other words, its own sources of financing, its own charitable activities, and a space where um, women would both learn and teach. And generally, between the male and female spaces, there would be some sort of curtain and a lattice through which the, the great female saints of the, of the order would then address their male students. Mentioning the, the, the harem sarai, it's where we get the English word harem, isn't it? And that notion of a harem, the forbidden place, the women's space, but as you said here, a place where, where women Sufi teachers can have their male disciples. When we think of the word harem, people usually think, oh, this is part of the palace of an emperor. And as indeed it is, but what you're giving us a sense of here then is these multifaceted institutions, these Hanukkahs with soup kitchens, with pilgrimage places for visitation, teaching places, meditation cells, hostels. These are really enduring institutions. It strikes me that, for example, when, when someone visits like a city like Delhi today, the former Mughal imperial capital, the great buildings of the Red Fort, the palace, including the harem, they're empty now. There's nothing there. They're museums. After the depredations of, of the 18th century, of Ahmad Shah Durrani, the founder of the Afghan Empire himself, who carried off so much loot from the Red Palace, and indeed then the British in the mid-19th century. And yet down the road there in Delhi is the shrine of Nizamuddin Aulia, the great medieval saint. And that's an enduring institution that has actually continued. And that's giving us a sense then that, as with the Mughals, the first founder of the Mughal Empire, Babur, when he comes from Kabul to Delhi, the first thing he does is make a pilgrimage to the shrine of, in this case, Nizam ad-Din. Because even for the emperors themselves, they recognize that these Hanukkahs, these Sufi institutions, these are what endures over the centuries when the political order, when the sultanates, when the empires, when the palaces fade away. So there's a really kind of concrete spaces there. But they're spaces then of teachings, of course, as all the libraries that you mentioned, meditation, but also moral teachings, teachings about the Sharia, the law, the outer law, as well as the tariqah, the path to haqiqah, the, the Sufi way and the way to reality, the, the hidden teachings, as, uh, as the Sufis would say. So can you give us an example then of the teachings, perhaps, of one of these particular Mujadidi scholar saints that took place at these Hanukkahs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're talking about really complex and synthetic pedagogies. We're really not talking about the idea of the madrasa today 
the rote learning of the Quran or the idea of, let's say, Sufi centers today of jumping up and down in ecstatic states. This is a very, very different world. And I should say it's a very different world, which still is quite operational in several of the, uh, of the Hanukkahs of this network. Um, there's a reason why the Mujaddidis held so much popular respect and why they formed this hidden caliphate. And a lot of that has to do with what's really going on in these Hanukkahs. So let's say that you're living in uh, the Afghan capital cities of Kabul or Peshawar in the late 18th century, and you wanted to be a Mujaddidi scholar, what would you do? So you'd begin by going to the maktab or the elementary school, which um, famously begins when you are four years, four months, and four days old, and that's really where your education commences. Uh, the curriculum of the elementary school varied region to region, but the basic aim was to impart literacy in Arabic, in Persian, generally one of the vernaculars, and of course, um, to learn about religious practices, about theology, etiquette was really big and good behavior, and then classical literature and poetry from Hafiz to Rumi to Sa'di to vernacular poets, and you do this really at quite a young age. If you happen to be from a Sufi scholarly household, from a young age, you'd watch the elders settle disputes, provide psychological counseling, marriage counseling. So you'd be learning the science of dispute resolution also from a very young age. Around age 15 to 16, you'd begin your higher madrasa education, where you'd learn um, a whole series of sciences, logic, law, scripture, poetics, mathematics, cosmology, philosophy, grammar, um, medicine is, is very important. And then of course, commentaries on Persian classics and so on and so forth. And then at a higher stage of your mother's education, when you were ready, you'd move on to the Sufi center. And this was absolutely essential. If you were going to be a jurist, you absolutely had to have a license in the Sufi sciences because the general idea is that if you are a jurist who does not have the moral or his or her moral ethical compass right, then there's certainly no way in which your pronouncements can actually reflect um, justice. So at this stage, again, um, generally in 20s, it could be even later, you'd move on to the Sufi center where you'd begin the inner sciences. And as you said, it's a bit like a, a monastery, but we shouldn't necessarily equate the two. Um, as I said earlier, they could actually be the very same institution. So several, let's say in this network, happen to be madrasas and khanakas at the same time. In certain cases, you'd actually, they'd be affiliated madrasas that you'd attend, and then the scholars there would pass you on to the Sufi sheikh at the Hanukkah. In some, as with um, the case of Kokan, there'd be different quadrangles that would house the madrasa, and then you'd graduate onto the inner sciences, or actually do some of them side by side as required. By the 18th century, the Sufi path, um, the mystical journey was down to a science. Uh, you'd have teachers, textbooks, very well laid out stages of mystical realization, literally step-by-step -step guidelines on how to become enlightened. So I'll give you an example of the type of teachings at Mujaddidi Sufi centers, and I'll do this based on a teacher's training manual, which Fazal Ahmad had authored in the uh, late 18th century. In this manual, Fazal Ahmad lays out three core intellectual and experiential disciplines, which are cosmology, the science of the subtle bodies, and meditation. So what is all this about? 
the first science was uh, cosmology, and this is literally the cosmological map, where one sees the relationship or can map the relationship between God's undifferentiated, unique essence, and then how it manifests from the names and attributes of God all the way down to the physical material world. It's like, a, you know, let's say rungs of a ladder, or literally it's a map through which we as humans with our spiritual and material essences can potentially travel. It's rooted, of course, in cosmological and neoplatonic works uh, ranging from Avicenna to Al-Ghazali, Ibn Arabi, and then of course, Sirhindi, um, who is sort of the key figure who defines the Mujaddidi cosmological map. The second science is the science of mystical physiology, which focuses on something called the Lataif, which is sometimes translated as subtle centers, a bit like chakras in tantric Buddhism. These are metaphysical entities that act as vehicles to facilitate spiritual travel or growth. And according to the Mujaddidis, according to Sir Hindi, human beings have 10 of these. And five of the subtle centers are located in the material world, which are fire, earth, air, water, the uh, elements, and then the ego self. Five of them are located in the world of divine command. And these are the heart subtle center, the spirit, the secret, the hidden, and the most hidden. And they're collectively known as the five jewels. Each subtle center is associated with a particular location on the human physical body, which becomes a recipient of divine energy. It's as if our physical or metaphysical body is built to receive these divine energies. It's as if we have a sort of these built-in radars through which we can, we can receive these, um, these energies. Each subtle center is also associated with a specific color and connected to a specific source of divine energy and then mediated by a particular prophet. Um, each may also be associated with a particular character trait. So for example, spiritual travel through the spirit subtle center can help develop patience and prevents anger. So hence the role of the teacher is to give disciples awareness of these subtle centers and then literally activate, as in turn on these subtle centers to allow the flow of divine energy that enables spiritual growth. The third subject um, that's in this manual is meditative praxis. And there's a whole soup of methods. There's dhikr, the, really the most common and basic one, the remembrance of God through reciting either God's names, attributes, um, or Quranic verses or praises on the prophet. And this is really the first and simplest practice to start getting the subtle bodies moving. Then there is something called negation and affirmation, which is actually a breath channeling exercise in which you recite la ilaha upwards, illallah downwards. And um, that is this process of actually acknowledging nothing, the existence of absolute nothing, and then filling it up with God being the only existent. And then there is muraqaba, which is a practice of visualizing the teacher through meditation. Uh, these meditation techniques generally involve breathing, they involve uh, mantras, and intense concentration, and then it gets more and more complex as you move up the path. Uh, so to wrap it up, um, how do the, all of these sciences work together? Through guided meditation, you engage and energize 
subtle centers to increase your consciousness, and that allows you to move up the cosmological map and to discover yourself. But in the Mujaddidi system, the goal is not union with God. And this is very important. The trajectory is more like an arc with an ascent and a descent. And this is connected to the last question you asked about Sufis being engaged in the world. Now, in the first stage, which is called travel to God, the seeker travels through all that is created and all that is contingent. And then this ends in a experience of fana, which is negation or annihilation of the ego self, where everything except God ceases to exist. But for the Mujaddidis, this is just the beginning. In the second stage, travel within God, different emanations or manifestations can be distinguished within God, like God's names, God's attributes, aspects, and essence. This second stage culminates in a state called subsisting within God, and now we're at the top of the arc. After this point, two stages of descent take us down this, the path back to the world of creation. Now the seeker regains consciousness of his or her own identity, temporality, and duality, that all is from God but remains, but that the seeker is also at the same time separate from God. So by this time, the seeker, transformed into a living saint, returns to the created world in order to practically guide communities, but from a superior spiritual vantage point. Now, keep in mind that all of these practices are happening. Um, if you, again, happen to be in, those, in this Hanukkah and choose this path, you'll also be um, expected to cook, uh, serve food to the poor, clean bathrooms, and even spend time as a wandering ascetic. And this is really jarring for several of the great scholars who end up at these Hanukkahs, whose first task ends up being cleaning the bathrooms of the Hanukkah before they move on to the more advanced spiritual practices. So ultimately, uh, this should give you a sense of the depth and breadth of knowledges that are coming together in Mujaddidi institutions and should help contextualize why these Sufis held so much popular authority. That's so helpful, Waleed. And you, you've, you've really sort of explained so well that there are these, in a sense, the, this inner, this bartani, this sort of hidden core of the teachings, but nonetheless have social, moral, practical day-to-day -day ramifications in the life of everybody, from the sheikh, the, the scholar saint, right down to the pilgrims, the, the tribesmen and women who perhaps come on, on, on pilgrimage to, to the Hanukkah. And I think it's important to, to add too that what you've described, although it has its, let's say, certain, as you mentioned, distinctive aspects of, of Sir Hindi's teachings, these are broadly speaking a set of practices, a set of teachings that would be recognizable to Muslims throughout the Islamic world. Anywhere, certainly before the 20th century, many traditionalist Muslims today. And furthermore, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Naqshbandi Mujahideenis were present from Southeastern Europe right through to Southeast Asia. So they were, you know, an extraordinarily widespread uh, network of teachings in their own right. But if I mention the, the 19th, early 20th century, we've talked a lot, I guess, about the 18th century spread of this, uh, this hidden caliphate. Perhaps we can move as we wrap up to more recent times, indeed the present day. So 
Can we finish by, by asking you what's the legacy today then of these scholar saints and their hidden caliphate? First, I should mention that uh, there are several processes of the modern age that eroded the network. And uh, my book actually traces a lot of these. Uh, for example, the way in which great game politics ruptures this whole zone of exchange, which effectively severs British South Asia, um, Russian Central Asia, and then Afghanistan is uncomfortably lodged in between as this buffer state. Many institutions end up being deliberately broken or co-opted as they were a potent threat to both the new colonial powers as well as post-colonial nation states. And then of course, there's modern ideologies which just devalue the unseen inner sciences over the course of the 20th century. Um, they were no longer deemed essential. They were seen as these vestiges of a backward past. Among the modern ideologies were, of course, the rising fundamentalist movements who then sidelined Sufis and cast doubt on the overall validity of their system. But still, the Mujaddidi order remains one of the most important Muslim religious networks. Uh, after all, the president of Afghanistan after the civil war was uh, Sibratullah Mujaddidi, who was a member of the Mujaddidi lineage. And in fact, himself had written a uh, a work on Sir Hindi's collected letters. But more important than the continuity of the lineages themselves is that the Mujaddidi legacy um, still in many ways shapes the Muslim world. The authority structure of the Mujaddidi order and their institutions, um, the very structure of their institutions and their pedagogies and critiques work their way into the leading Muslim social movements from Turkey to Indonesia including, ironically, even Salafi fundamentalists and modernists, along with Sufi traditionalists. They've all picked up bits and pieces of this, of what the Sirhindi and the Mujaddidis left. Much of the leadership of modern Muslim revivalist movements uh, were products of Mujaddidi Sufi centers and madrasas, and actively engaged Mujaddidi ideas. The range includes the Indian modernists of Aligarh University, the reformist Deoband Madrasa, um, one branch of which famously spawned the Taliban, and the Jadidis in Central Asia and Russia who pushed for modern educational reforms. The Sufi Barelvi Indian traditionalist movement uh, deploys Mujaddidi theology to defend Sufi shrine practices against fundamentalist critiques, arguing that Sufism is bound to the Sharia. And concurrently, Mujaddidi discourses on the primacy of Sharia, censoring wayward religious practices, have been adopted by both modernists and fundamentalists to critique Sufi traditions, ironically, including the Mujaddidis. Well, that's so helpful then, in, in some ways, bringing to manifestation in some ways this hidden caliphate that is actually still very visible, its legacy across the Islamic world today. Professor Walid Ziad, thank you so much for talking to us today in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you so much for having me. Dark, 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 dark,